Uh, Jesus, we thank you for the way that you speak to us, that you minister to us. It is kind and gracious, and we are grateful for it. Uh, we ask that you would bless our time in your word, that you would use it for your name, for your glory, uh, that we would um, get a chance to, to meet you through the way that you've revealed yourself. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen. So uh, this is true, I think, all the time, but it feels especially true as we're going through the book of Colossians that there are kind of uh, two intended audiences for every message. And you can fall into both categories. There's actually, I would say, there's three intended categories for every message. And uh, you can probably fall into uh, the first two categories, both and at the same time. And uh, those, those two are this. Paul is writing a letter to the Colossians. He's an apostle, which basically just means a father to this church, even though he's never been there. He's, he's laying foundations. He calls himself a master builder. He is putting the pieces, the theological pieces together, the framework for this church to build their lives and their community on. So he's writing this letter, helping to establish that. And on the one hand, you are a recipient you're being taught and trained and developed and grown. As the Colossians received this letter and they started putting things into practice in their lives, they were recipients of all that God wanted to do. So that's one posture. And, and you can absolutely fall into that category as a learner, a grower, somebody that is being built up into the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the second thing is you can look at Paul and his apostolic ministry as a leader in the church, and you can learn what he does to start putting it into practice in your own life. So we believe that every single follower of Jesus is a leader. We would put that in, that's just, I, I believe that, in that the moment you say yes to following Jesus, the command of the Great Commission applies to you. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so you have a job to do. You have a, a leadership role where you've been entrusted with the gospel and now you have a role to take that to whoever comes after you. Whoever the next is, you get a chance to hand that off to them. So simultaneously, you are being grown and developed as a recipient, but then also you're learning, how do I do this whole leadership thing, disciple-making thing, pouring the gospel out into other people thing? How do I do that? What does that look like? And we learn from Paul his posture, his attitude, his approach to ministering to the Colossians, and we can kind of take notes and say, okay, with my kids, with my neighbors, with my roommates, with my family, with my friends, with my neighbors, with my classmates, with my coworkers, with anybody that's in this sphere that God has put me in, I can take on this posture, this, this role that Paul occupies, and I can start to imitate him as he pours into the lives of other people. Now, the third category that I mentioned is those of you that are not yet followers of Jesus. You are um, so welcome to be here. I, honestly, I'm so glad that you're here. And one of the things that we encourage people to do that are here that say, well, I'm not sure I'm in on this thing. I don't fully believe this or I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it is to examine this through that grid of skepticism. Like, I, I believe the gospel holds up to the deepest of skepticism. And so I encourage you to run the stuff that we're saying through that grid. Just start passing it through, seeing what holds up, wrestle with it. And I believe that God will minister to you in that and will reveal himself to you. But that would be that third category. So not yet a follower of Jesus, a growing person, a recipient of the gospel, and then a leader, somebody that's 
leading other people to be more like Jesus. Those are kind of the ways that we can receive any teaching like this. And as we go through this particular passage, you're going to see both things. What Paul is trying to accomplish in the Colossians, it's huge, it's important, and we'll talk about that. But we're also going to talk about how Paul wants to accomplish that in them. What is his attitude? How does he approach life? And we want to learn from that. So that's the basic approach. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. If you feel like we're supposed to stop at the chapter breaks, you can be told that those numbers are not divinely inspired. They came about 1,200 years after the Bible was written. So we just kind of blow right through those and say, yeah, I think they're wrong. That's the middle of a thought. They just put a chapter break. All right, so here we go. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That is a great section. And it starts off with this incredible statement. Paul says this. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now this is a, uh, a, an opening statement where Paul goes straight at our current context and culture, which is to strive for Uh, the easiest path, the most comfortable path in life. We don't like the idea of suffering. We don't like the idea of hardship. Uh, We try and avoid it at all costs. In fact, a lot of times, if we are walking down a path of obedience and there's any resistance at all, we take that as clearly God's not in this and we try and divert our path. Paul has a completely different theology of suffering. And I want to take a moment and I want to share that with you, what his perspective of suffering is. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. At this moment, Paul's sufferings is that he is in prison for preaching the gospel. So he writes this letter from prison. Now, there's an interesting moment in the book of Acts, I think it's 18 or 19, where um, Agabus, the prophet, comes to meet up with Paul and some other church leaders, and he takes Paul's belt. Great moment. Prophets always do the weirdest things. He takes this belt off of Paul, and he binds his hands with it, and he says, whoever's belt this is will be imprisoned when you go into that town. I'm just giving you the gist of it. And all the leaders look at Paul and say, clearly you're not supposed to go to that town because you're going to go to jail. 
And Paul says, clearly I'm supposed to go to that town because jail is where I'm supposed to be. It's just a different approach. It's a different perspective where Paul's looking at life and saying, my job is not to avoid persecution, hardship, and suffering. My job is to obey Jesus. And I get the privilege along the way of facing hardship in the midst of that obedience. Why would Paul want that? Why does he want suffering? James tells us uh, in James 1, sorry, Danae, I didn't tell you this one, but uh, James tells us in James 1 that consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops steadfastness. When you go through the fire, when you go through life and there is resistance, difficulty, persecution, hardship, suffering, and you are faithful in that, and you come out the other end, you are grown in your steadfastness, your ability to stand firm in life, to weather the storms, to be built on Christ. So Paul looks at these things, these sufferings, these, these moments of hardship, and he says, you know what this is doing for me? Building my steadfastness preparing me for whatever the next challenge is and the next one and the next one and the next one. And do you know what I get to do? He says, I get to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which is a strange sentence, and a lot of people have wrestled with that sentence. And I, I gotta be honest, I believe that what Paul's talking about is that Jesus promised that his followers would suffer, and Paul's saying, I'm stepping into Jesus' promise. Jesus promised that we would struggle that for his name, we would face hardship. And Paul's like, I'm in it. And he is stoked that he is fulfilling Jesus' prophetic word. He's enjoying the fact that he gets to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, as we go through this section, you're going to see that Paul uses words like suffer, toil, struggle, struggling, he uses language to indicate that life is not going to be easy, and to be honest, it probably shouldn't be that easy. I had an interesting moment with Kristen uh, the other day. For those of you guys that don't know, we took in a, a foster baby about three or four weeks ago. It was an unexpected situation, a family member that needed um, some help, and we took in the, the 10-month-old boy. And uh, it was sort of like a, you know, 10 p.m. phone call. Will you take this baby? Uh, yes, and then we'll figure it out. That was kind of how the whole thing went. In fact, I was out of town on my way back, and Kristen called and said, uh, life's about to change a little bit. I just said yes to this. And I was like, awesome, <laughs> all right. Um, and to be honest, it's been, it's been very exciting and full and joyful, and it's also been incredibly challenging, like, very, very difficult, wearing on us. Uh, it's been a, a pretty good-sized struggle at times. And so yesterday, uh, I was um, in the, one of those moments. I don't know, guys, how you react to circumstances being hard. I was pouting. Anybody pout? <laughs> I, I'm, a, I, I'm a hardcore pouter, uh, meaning I don't, like, lash out in anger. I'm not a big complainer. I'm just a, a sappy idiot that, that pouts. That's what I do, all right? So... Uh, I was pouting yesterday, and uh, <laughs> that's like revelation. I was, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was pouting yesterday, and uh, Kristen said, hey, let's, you know, it's a beautiful day yesterday. Did you guys enjoy the day? It was beautiful. Kristen says, let's go for a walk, and I pouted about going for a walk with my wife and, uh, and daughters, uh, and so she was just like, all right, that's enough. So we were walking and talking about this, specifically about um, challenge, 
And one of the things that she shared is that for us, things have been relatively easy for the last couple years. Uh, to be honest, you guys aren't being crazy boneheaded. Like there's not a lot of uh, junk going on in the church right now. There's not a lot of complaining going on. You're not knocking on my door saying, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Like we don't have to deal with that stuff. You guys are like, yeah, we love it. It's like pretty, pretty easy right now. I just got done teaching 78 weeks in the book of Matthew and I loved it. It just felt like my heart language was coming out every Sunday. I, I showed up on Mondays for message prep, just pumped and coffee, and I'm like, yeah, I love where we're at. The church is growing. Like, we're not advertising. We don't have to tell anybody about ourselves. It just kind of happens. People are showing up, and it was starting to feel, like, pretty natural. Like, this is the way that it's supposed to be, and it's just, we're, on, we're on cruise control. So Kristen and I were walking, and I was pouting. And, uh, and she just said, like, what do we want from this? What do we want from leading Anthem? Because whatever we want is what we should want from the people that we lead. Like, we should want them to walk the life that we're living. So if we want easy cruise control, everything's working out great and clicking, and just like the, the, the simplest possible approach to life, then yeah, we should, we should pursue that. That's, what we should, that's the path that we should go down. But if we want to lead this church to a place of saying yes to Jesus, regardless of the cost, and not just to do it begrudgingly or obligatorily, it's the same word, I just like synonyms, <laughs> then we should probably say yes and be joyful about it. And I'm sitting there thinking, you can't just tell me to be joyful. Like, you know, that's just, I'm still pouting. I'm sorry, it, took, it takes me a while. Like, I just don't, I, I can't just flip the switch from pout to non-pout. It takes me at least 10 minutes. So she's saying all these things, and, and we are wrestling and praying through this and realizing, like, I don't want easy. I don't want easy for this church. I don't want us to just be everything clicking on all cylinders from now until kingdom come. And you're like, why? Wouldn't you want that? Why is that a bad thing? I guess, to be honest, it doesn't seem like cruise control has ever been the way that the kingdom of God has worked. And Paul looks at this picture of prison getting in the way of him getting to Rome and to Spain and to all of these places, and he's like, God's in this. This is a disruption in the plan. I am suffering for your sake, and I am pumped about this. And I just, in processing through this passage, pouting yesterday, the last month of a foster baby, life of five kids, the full house, the whole deal, just trying to figure all of that. Seeing this passage, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And hearing my wife say, we didn't take this baby in for us. We actually took this baby in for our church to disrupt the norm, to put a hitch in the easy because we need to press into what is right, not always what is simple. And I want to challenge you as a church, us as a church. It's not like we, when, we, when everything's going great, you say, oh, quick, I better cut off my foot and limp a little bit. Like, it's not like we, we bring it on ourselves in like a masochistic way or whatever. It's not, that's not the picture of suffering. The picture of suffering is whatever Jesus puts in front of us, 
we run towards that as fast as possible. And I want that to be our church. I want that to be the people that we are, the way that we love Jesus, the, the life that we choose to live, the passion that we have, is if Jesus puts in front of us a move to Denver, then we say, yes, I'm going to run at that. Even if I have to figure out the details and work towards that, I'm going to run at it. If Jesus puts in front of us a kid or a, a new job or a, a conversation where he's just saying, no, this is clearly the person that you need to be speaking to right now. Open your mouth. And you run at that and you say, yes, now, today, I'm in. Now that's 15 minutes on the first half of one verse and we've got a lot to get through. So <laughs> we're going to try and pick up the pace a little bit. But I, I guess I want to make sure that we understand because there is a little bit of a spectrum on the beliefs about suffering. Some people think that God never wants his people to suffer. Other people that think God always wants his people to suffer. I think there's a healthy theology of suffering. And that lands in this place of when we suffer for the name of Christ, we rejoice because we know that God is at work in our lives. He is shaping us in that moment. So let's press into this. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church of which I became a minister. That word minister means servant according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. I've been entrusted with a mission, with a ministry. That's a great moment for you to stop and ask, have I been entrusted with a mission, with a ministry? I believe the answer is yes. You sort of have to buy into that. I believe that every single one of us that has said yes to Jesus has been entrusted with the gospel that we are responsible to pass on. But his stewardship is that uh, the word of God would be fully known. The mystery of God hidden for the ages now revealed to his saints. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to say about this. First of all, Paul's looking at this saying, I've been entrusted with the gospel and I have a responsibility to pass that on. Is that unique to Paul because he was an apostle? Anybody want to say yes to that question? It's kind of rhetorical, but no. It is not unique to Paul because he was an apostle. You have been entrusted with the gospel as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a parent, whatever your role in life you have been entrusted with the gospel and you've been given the ministry, the stewardship of passing that on. Now Paul says this. He says, the mystery of God has been revealed. Now I love that this language is in here. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. I just want to take a quick moment on this. There's a, uh, a weird strand of Christianity right now where we love like the next big book. Whatever the next big idea is that some pastor somewhere, that some prophet somewhere, that some apostle somewhere, that somebody somewhere comes up with, we jump on it, we get really excited about it, and it's the new way to live as a follower of Jesus. And I just want to encourage you with one thing, and that is there's no mystery left to be revealed. The mystery has been revealed. And if you're in this Christian life looking for some solution that is TBD, that's on its way, I want to tell you that's the wrong direction to be looking. We're not going to find some third Corinthians or something like that that's going to open up the door and all of a sudden all of our stuff is going to be like way more clear. 
It's not going to be some book that gets written that you read and all of a sudden it's like, yes, you can find encouragement in books. I, I read some books. And on the spectrum of Christian books, there are some good ones and there are some rubbish ones. That's absolutely the case for sure. I don't get mad at you or begrudge you for reading Christian books. I think they can be super encouraging. But here's the rule. If you find yourself reading Christian books that are helpful instead of diving into the depths of the scripture, you are disallowed from reading books. I put a ban on your Amazon account. <laughs> Reject it. All right, we have, a, we have a program that we'll insert into your computer that chop blocks every book that you buy until you find out how to dive into this and find the riches of Christ and Christ alone. This is where that needs to start. Look at how Paul describes this. He's been given this, this stewardship to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. You have it. You're not looking for it. You have it. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of God is the fact that Christ resides in each and every one of us. Jesus is alive. He is in you. You are his temple. God's presence used to reside in a temple built with human hands where there were bricks and walls and, and the whole ornate thing. That's where his presence used to reside. And then he left that and formed a new covenant where he said, now I am in you. That is the mystery of God is how that is even possible. How can a holy and perfect God join with you, a wretched and wicked person, or me, a wretched and wicked person, and be reconciled and reside in you and call you his temple? How is that possible? That is the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory. For the rest of your life, however many years you have left, my great-grandpa lived to 103 years old, so I figure I've got a lot of life left. That's in the genes now. Whatever amount of life you've got left, you could spend all of the rest of it diving into the well of the riches of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and you would never find the end of it. You would never find the end of it. You don't need peripheral issues. You don't need random encouragements about, about far-reaching things. You could just dive into Christ over and over and over for the rest of your life, and you would never find the end of the richness of the mystery of God ever. And if you're looking for alternative things because you just need something to kind of stimulate or, or stir you up, and you've not yet learned the goodness of diving into Christ in you, the hope of glory. For the rule, you can read whatever you want as long as you are diving into this deeply and richly first, finding truth and power and value in the word of God, and then you can order whatever you want to order. Got it? All right. That was just, the, that's the mystery thing. I wanted that. All right. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I want you to hear Paul's approach to this in verse 128. He says, Him we proclaim, Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone. That word warning means like admonishing or uh, uh, making sure that you understand all of the far-reaching implications. Warning everyone and teaching everyone or informing everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. 
Now, there's a, a brief moment when you read something like mature in Christ. Sometimes as Christians, we can take maturity and we can take glorification and we can put them into one category and you need to not do that. So we think of maturity and we think of, I'll never get there until Jesus comes again. I will always be maturing until the end of my life or Christ comes again, whichever comes first. <laughs> That's when maturity happens. And I want to separate that out. That's glorification. Jesus is going to glorify you, your resurrected body. That's all to come. We talk about that in the already not yet language of the kingdom. That is our future. Maturity is something that can and should happen in you as you are living life on this earth as a follower of Jesus. It is not only possible, it's actually expected of you. If you have your Bibles, go over to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. You can keep your thumb in Colossians. We'll be back there momentarily. So here's, uh, here's what Paul writes, or I guess what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles or the mystery of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the author of Hebrews is looking at this body of believers and saying that maturity is those in the body that have learned to discern good and evil, the ones that have understood the word of God and are faithful to steward that in their own lives. That is maturity. That is very attainable in this life. So when Paul writes and he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ, what he's saying is we have an objective for you in the church. We want to grow you and build you to be mature in your faith. And it is very attainable. This is the expected outcome for life in the body of Christ. So as leaders of the church, the elders at Anthem, we expect you to be growing to maturity in Christ. And maturity brings discernment and it also brings teaching. What did uh, the author of Hebrews say? You ought to be teachers by now, but you need somebody to teach you. The very nature of the gospel is that it is to be passed on that you are trained with it and equipped with it, and then you turn and give that to somebody else. If our philosophy of ministry, if our idea of what successful church was is that the group of people that show up to listen to me teach every Sunday just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows perpetually until we just need a bigger building, and then it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and everybody's just showing up to listen to me teach, that is a failure of what we are supposed to do as leaders. For you to come and listen to me teach has a, an intended outcome, and that is that you would grow to be teachers of the word yourselves. If you come up here uh, one Sunday and you just say, Matt, I feel like the Lord is really calling me to plant a church here in Thousand Oaks. I don't say, get behind me, Satan. That's not my attitude. That's not my posture. I get pumped that there are people that have seen the word of God at work in their lives and say, I want to go and I want to I lead other people to follow Jesus. I get excited about that. If I have people that are coming to me and saying, hey, what, is it, uh, what does it mean for me to start a community group? How can, I, how can I be involved in that? 
hey, I'm looking for teaching opportunities. Is there anything that I can do to teach other people the word of God? Hey, I've been getting people together at my house every morning at 6 a.m. for the last three years, and we, we study the scriptures together, and I, I end up being the person that, that, that kind of shows people the way, and I'd love to learn how to do that better. Those are, those are signs of people that are, that are saying, I want more of the ability to teach people God's word. You don't have to be a professional Christian to do this. This isn't talking entirely about church planting or vocational ministry. This is what happens in every follower of Jesus is that you would grow to the place where you have the word of God planted deeply in you and you start teaching it to other people. That's our goal. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. This is why I toil struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. That's what Paul tells the Colossians. He's just putting it out there saying, my end game, my intended outcome is that you would grow to maturity and you would be able to handle the life and the business of leading people in their relationships with Jesus. That's what I want. I don't want you to perpetually depend on me. I want to train you up to be parents of others that are walking with Jesus spiritual moms and dads to other people that are needing to be grown to maturity. Think about it this way. If there were a generation of believers that stopped developing people to be ministers of the gospel, just, just imagine that, that everybody were coming to just a, a final generation of teachers, but they weren't training, they weren't allowing other people to go and teach, it was just all to receive, the gospel would die out immediately. That would be the end. That would be the last generation that teaches the gospel because it, it dies if we are not reproducing and pouring into people to carry the gospel to the next generation. And this was Paul's perspective. 2 Timothy 2.2, he says this. The things you've heard me say, he's talking to Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and women who will teach others also. That's Paul's perspective. I want you to take this and hand it to other people who will take this and hand it to other people who will take this and hand it to other people and on and on and on. So we want you to be people who hear what we're saying, hear the word of God, and assume in your mind that at some point, either now or in the near future, that you should be growing towards leading other people in that. That's the maturing that we're trying to accomplish. Now, Paul takes some time with the Colossians. You can go back to Colossians. And he starts to explain what that maturity looks like. He says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Here it is, three things. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's the first thing. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. That's the second thing. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul has three objectives as he's maturing these people. The first is unity. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. This is what Paul is working towards. My goal, this Paul, I'm, I'm pretending to be Paul at the moment. My goal for you, Colossae, is that the work that we are doing binds you together in the effort of Christ in the work that you are set out to do. 
I want you to grow together in love. Now, how can you understand that love? I think there are probably three kinds of love that are being factored into what Paul's talking about here. And I'll just throw them out there. I think the first one is that he's knitting them together in the love of God. God's love for us. Who are you? What has God done in your life? How has he demonstrated his love towards you? How has he lavished you with his grace and generosity? It's the preaching of the gospel where we learn the love of God and Paul wants to bind them together in that common experience of being loved by God. The second love is their love for each other. That in the same way that Christ loved us, we learn to love each other. I did a a wedding yesterday and the the couple wanted me to include in there that part of their, uh, their relationship was that they had to choose each other but not just one time. They actually had to continually choose each other. Like it wasn't like natural for them to come together. They actually had to make that choice repeatedly to come together. I thought it was a beautiful statement and such a powerful point to be made that, that it's not like you just choose Jesus and then everything goes simply and easily beyond that. And it's not like you choose to be in community and then it's all easy after that. You actually have to choose to do the things that Paul tells the Philippians. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Our natural tendency is to be pretty self-focused, pretty selfish. I think that's where pouting comes from, by the way, in case you're wondering. Our natural tendency is to be pretty self-focused. What can I get out of this situation? When are people going to minister to me? How can I be served? And Paul's basically just saying, just flip it. Just turn that right upside down and say, how can I serve people? How can I love them? How can I take care of them? How can I see other people as more important than myself? What can I do as a part of this body to serve, to lift up, to minister to? And that is what Paul teaches us to discipline ourselves in so that we can find unity. So he wants to knit their hearts together in love. And I think the third love that he would talk about is the love that we have for the world. The love towards the lost for people that don't yet know Jesus. That they are being knit together in this common love of mission. But Paul's objective for maturity is that the body would be unified. Now that actually comes out of uh, Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Uh, You can either see it up here or you can turn there if you want. But this is Jesus' prayer for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you and me. If you were ever wondering if Jesus prayed for you while he was on earth, he did, right here. He prayed for you, specifically. Here's his prayer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the body of Christ, according to Jesus, is the testimony that the gospel is true. So when we are not unified, we are, we're teaching a a bad gospel. We're demonstrating that God doesn't work, that Jesus' blood doesn't cover sin and minister to us and reconcile us to each other. When we devolve into disunity, We're teaching the world that they don't need this. They don't need this gospel. It's no good for them. When we seek out the unity of the Spirit and we choose to say, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to consider others better than myself. 
I'm going to look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then we demonstrate Jesus to the world. He goes on, verse 23. Uh, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So part of our evangelism, part of our ministry to people that don't know Jesus is living in unity. So this is Paul's goal for maturing the Colossians, that they would be knit together in love. And then his goal, his second goal, is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. So in essence, what Paul's doing, and this is, we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Paul has set the form. Thank you, Sean, for sending me that text. He has set the form and laid the rebar, and now he is pouring the concrete into that. He is establishing a foundation for them to build the rest of their house on. So he tells them things like, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that by him and for him all things were made, that he holds all things together. He's telling them what they need to know so that they can build their lives on Christ. And then he says this, that maturity is growing in the riches of full assurance of understanding. Assurance is certainty, confidence in. When you are growing in the riches of full assurance, you're talking about being confident in the foundation that you're building your house on. That's a metaphor, in case you didn't pick up on that. You're talking about knowing that Christ is something that I can build my life on. I can stand firmly on who he is and what he's done, and I do not need to be looking elsewhere. And so Paul's actually building this up in people. He's just saying, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to keep teaching you Jesus until you know that Jesus is what you can build your life on. I'm going to go to that well over and over and over and over again until you know that you have full assurance and you can stand confidently on this. And then the last thing that he says is the uh, knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that a strange sentence? Knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What Paul's saying to you is, I want to show you Jesus. I want you to know him. I want you to get to know him because in Jesus is all the treasure that God has for you. All the treasure of wisdom, all the treasure of knowledge is found in Jesus. You could dive into that pool. You could dig into that hole. You could plunge your bucket into that well. Whatever metaphor you want to choose, you could go there over and over and over, and you will never find the end of the riches of what God has for you. He has an endless source of wisdom available to you in Christ. So as a church, you might come here uh, over and over and over and start to get tired of hearing about Jesus, about Christ, about the finished work of Jesus, about all that he has done. You may start to feel like, when's he going to talk about other things? I'm going to tell you now, the answer is never. <laughs> never. We're just never going to talk about other things. Now Jesus has implications, and we'll talk about those, but we're not going to talk about other things. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
We could spend 35 years on the way, we could spend 35 years on the truth, and we could spend 35 years on the life, and then we could go back to the way and go back to the truth and go back to the life, and we're just never gonna find the end of the goodness that is Jesus. So we preach Jesus and him crucified because that is where all of what God has for us is found. Why does Paul need to tell the Colossians this? Because there's other things flying in. There's other things flying in all the time. In fact, he calls them plausible arguments. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Sure, that's plausible. I love that, I love that word plausible. It's a, you know, people have their ideas. Like, yeah, I guess that's plausible. But I want to build my life on what is absolute. And Paul's writing to them saying, let me give you what is absolute. I don't care about what's plausible. I want what is solid. I want what is proven, what is demonstrated, what is revealed to us. I want that to build my life on. We talked about this last week that, that uh, the, the ultimate goal is not to simply chase down every option, every new way of thinking, everything that's out there. We actually don't need all of that. We've had generations of, uh, of people that have come through that have given us new ideas and new ways to think. And every time they come through, there's always that, that temptation for the church to dive in or out. And I don't, I don't know all the extent of all of these people, but you could look at Oprah, you could look at Eckhart Tolle, you could look at whatever. You could, there's tons of them. You could look at these things, Enneagrams or whatever. You could look at all of them and just say, well, there's good stuff there. It's plausible. And so you've got to say it with that voice, right? It's plausible. <laughs> but there comes a point where as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a leader of this church, I just want to say, why? If you haven't reached the bottom of Christ yet, which I can guarantee you haven't, why not keep diving and just seeing what's down there? Because you'll never find the bottom of that, I guarantee it. And it's just better and better and better and better the deeper you dive. Paul writes this at the end. He says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul's writing to them, and he's just saying, Guys, I cannot wait to come to you and see how solid you are building your foundation. It's going to be such a joy. It's going to be such a sweet thing. Uh, a couple of days ago, I had lunch at a uh, dirty Mongolian barbecue in Simi Valley. Was, <laughs> I was not feeling great afterwards. It just... I think it's still there, <laughs> here. But it was a great lunch. It was an amazing time. Um, I sat down with a guy, and he was sharing, me, uh, sharing with me that the years that they've been at Anthem, the, uh, the most powerful thing that he's ever gotten from Anthem wasn't from any of my sermons. I was like, all right, I'll take that. Um, he said it's that we take communion every single week. And he said every week, my wife and I, no matter what fight, no matter what issue, no matter what struggle we're going through, no matter what's happening, we come together and we take the body of Jesus and we take the blood of Jesus and we have to affirm that this is more true than the things that we're wrestling with. And guys, in Dirty Mongolian Barbecue in Simi Valley, I just started weeping. That's what I want. That's what this is. 
That is what we are here for, is that we would grow this foundation so strong that honestly, you're not here for me to tickle your ears or to tell you something new or to find some new way of looking at a scripture. You are here to build your life on Jesus and his finished work, and that is what we celebrate. That is where joy is. That is where reconciliation comes from. That's what heals us. That's what binds us together. That's what will never fail. I will fail you. Do you know this? I will fail you. I will let every single one of you down at some point. I am a huge disappointment when you get to know me. (laughs) I cannot be your savior. That is not possible. I I can show you Jesus, and I love doing it. It's a pleasure that God has entrusted me with this gospel to be able to share with you is a a joy of all joys. But it can't be me that you're here for. It can't. It needs to be Jesus and his finished work that you are building your life on. And if you're not in this for that, then I don't know that we can do much for you. You'll blow in for a season and you'll blow out at some point when all of a sudden we're not saying the things that you're liking to hear anymore. The songs don't quite fit. The the room's a little too warm, whatever. But when you find Jesus and a group of people that say, we found Jesus and a family that's knit together in the name of Jesus, That's something that you can build with. I can't wait to see that in you. I will remember that lunch, I believe, for the rest of my life. A young man that said every Sunday, I come to the table with my wife and we reconcile because Jesus. Oh, man. Oh, my word. That's where life is, you guys. Do you want life? Do you want truth? Do you want the way? It's in Jesus. So if there's one thing that I can say today, I mean, we we called this series Choose Jesus because Paul is writing to the Colossians over and over. There's gonna be a lot of stuff flying in, a lot of options. They don't matter. Choose Jesus. That's where you build your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for being good and gracious and kind to us. Thank you for um, giving us a foundation that we can build our lives on. Lord, you are, um, you're worthy of anything that we can give and more. Our worship It can fall short. Our offerings are, uh, you you don't need them. You don't need our money. You don't need our songs. You don't need our prayers. But you choose to rejoice in them, to use them, to interact with us, to engage with us. We want to choose you, but also just rejoice in the fact that you chose us. And you came after us and said, I want you, I love you, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm in you. So Lord, would you 
just stir, uh, stir in us a readiness to press in to whatever you have in front of us. Lord, you threw something at Kristen and I, and we're so grateful for it. And I know there are different situations in this room. Some people are recovering from broken situations. Some are in the middle of hardship and struggle. Some are clicking on all cylinders and everything's going great. I just pray, Lord, that regardless of circumstances represented in this room, that you, Jesus, would be the thing that we choose, whether it entails suffering or not. And we run after you. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen.